This podcast is brought to you by Central, helping schools work smart. In the same way that academics in university protect their academic freedom, I think teachers increasingly should be supported by leadership in schools to practice curriculum disobedience. The idea that we can be told from on high, this is what you're doing and how you do it, regardless of who's in front of you, where or when, is absurd. That's Cameron Patterson reflecting on some of the pressures facing teachers in the 2020s. Sounds controversial. Cameron is my guest today on Central Station, and in a moment, we'll unpack exactly what he means by that and a whole lot more. Hello, I'm Colin Klupik. Cameron Patterson is a highly experienced teacher and has been teaching for several decades. Cameron will be participating in the 2021 Sydney Morning Herald School Summit as a discussion panellist addressing the pressures on the teaching profession in the 2020s. For Cameron, the pressures are real, but he encourages us to remember that teaching is highly rewarding and extremely valuable for our children and society, both now and into the future. Cameron's views are frank, and he's passionate about quality teaching and learning. Cameron very kindly offered to spend some time talking with me before the summit about some of those pressures and what we can do to better support teachers. Cameron, teaching has been considered a pressure job for a long time, and you've been in the job for a long time, a couple of decades now, and a, and a very small disclosure here, we actually used to work together in a previous life. Um, the question I think is on, that's on everyone's minds is, is it getting worse? And if the pressure's getting worse, what's causing that? Is, is this kind of like a, like a boiling frog thing? Yeah, look, I, I don't know that I can directly answer the question, but I'm going to start by suggesting that I, I think... We need to be a little bit careful by talking about worse uh, because teaching is an extraordinarily rewarding career and we need to make sure that we're open about that right at the beginning. We don't want to scare people away by uh, everything that's wrong with it out front because there are certainly pressures. But I became a teacher because I love the fact that every day is exciting and we're talking about creative knowledge work. It's non-routine work and that's what adds the pressure, uh, that every day is different and it's becoming harder in some respects. Um, Gabby Stroud wrote her book, Teacher, a couple of years ago, where she heartbreakingly describes the increasing stresses on teachers. We're talking long hours, heavy workloads, um, no time during term time to effectively recharge or re-energise. And you know the old cartoon where the parents go to visit the teacher in, the let's say, the 1960s and the, the student hasn't done well, and so the, the parents turn to berate the student in front of the teacher, and then the cartoon 20 years later when the same parents are visiting with their student and this time the parents are berating the teacher because the student hasn't done well. But there's some truth in that to some extent now because you often get the feeling that if something goes wrong, it's the teacher's fault. Um, but two key elements I'd come back to in terms of the pressure. One is Adrian Pickley, who used to be the New South Wales Minister for Education and then worked at uh, the Gonski Institute for some time. He suggested that administration, the administrative burden, is the number one problem for teachers and it distracts them from the main game of teaching. And I think the bureaucratic administration requirements that are imposed on teachers, which are intended to be helpful, are creating significant challenges for teachers that are not helpful. And the other aspect that I point you know, I'm, you and I worked together in an independent school. I've worked for a long time in the independent school sector, and I'm incredibly well resourced in terms of the support I can provide for teachers in the schools that I've worked in. Um, I'm going to add in here the issue of equity because it isn't the case that all schools are resourced effectively. Mm. 
Uh, and I think that's probably one of the major problems confronting us at the moment in education in Australia, uh, is the equity and inequity faced by our teachers. And in particular, I'll point out funding arrangements and the lack of fairness, the lack of parity in those funding arrangements. That's obviously going to be enormously on people's minds, and particularly also for pre-service teachers who are about to go into teaching or those who are studying to be teachers. You know, I've, I've heard um, very different reactions from students who've gone to um, uh, state schools that are doing it tough, and then some have landed in fantastic environments in very well-resourced independent and private schools. Is that is that a threat to parents as well? Should they should they be concerned about that? Is how do we navigate that? Parents obviously want the best education for their children, and we're talking about a, a political dilemma at the moment. It's a political issue, and it needs to be addressed. I think Australia, Pazzi Salberg, often says that Australia has the largest divide in terms of equity pretty much in the, the Western world. And it affects outcomes, there's no question. My argument very simply in, in terms of the politics is that I think every child, every student should be resourced adequately to achieve. In terms of resourcing and uh, equity and access to uh, equipment and so forth, one of, the, one of the biggest issues that I hear talked about quite a lot is the technology issue. Everybody's talking about technology and education. You just can't get away from it. Uh, and none of us can get away from technology anymore unless we try really, really hard. And when you and I were working together, I remember that you could almost describe that as a pre-computing environment. Computers were just starting to arrive on the desks of teachers rather than being in a communal space. We're now definitely in a post-computing environment because we're, we're all here and it's kind of normal. What effect has that made on the, uh, and if I can just put this in air quotes, on the stresses? Is that making it worse? Look, I'm sure it is. Um, but learning's messy. If you approach learning so that you've been teaching for 20 years, if you've done the same thing the same way for 20 years, then you're going to be significantly struggling with technology. Whereas if you're approaching learning as a messy creative act, where every time you approach learners, you're approaching them in a different way, and you're using technology as a, as a pedagogical tool. Um, I can see both sides to the equation. Let me say this, technology has great affordances, which we absolutely have to take advantage of, but it also has significant distractions. I think it's important to be teaching students and teaching student teachers about who owns data, about privacy, about the potential power of tech companies that we're seeing at the moment and how that can be relayed through education. But what we see through social media and through digital communication is it's made us poor listeners. And I think that is exacerbated in the classroom. Um, the more technology is utilised in certain ways, the more we tend to favour certainty over debate. And you can see that across a whole range of, of social realms at the moment throughout the world. My ideal for schools is that we're operating in the interspace, that, that carefully nurtured space where debate is favoured and saved rather than pushing to the extremes of conversation, for instance, the right and the left, mm. traditional and the mm. progressive. Mm -hmm. I think the value of schools and the purpose of schools is creating those safe spaces for students and really valuing the ability of teachers to build those collaborative trusting dynamics in the classroom. So we can talk about technology all you like. Um, obviously it can do some great things, it can do some terrible things. And we're in that in-between time at the moment where we haven't quite worked out how to use technology most effectively for the teaching and learning process in schools as they've always been constructed. We tend to plonk technology on a pedagogy that's been adopted for many, many years. 
And my suspicion is that we probably need to significantly adapt our pedagogy now that we have this technology at our disposal, and we're not quite sure how to do that properly yet. I love that comment that you made when you said that you think that learning is messy. When I think about what we teach teachers to do, particularly in pre-service teaching with lesson planning, there's an enormous amount of structure there, and and I completely understand why we do that. And structure is a good thing, and it's a good thing to be organized in your thoughts, etc. So there's, there's a whole lot of good things to say about that. But I also like the idea of the fact that teaching is messy. What do you think? Of, what, what does that mean to you? Look, learning, learning is messy. There's no two ways about it. I think learning becomes problematic in schools when we imagine that it's some sort of uh, bite-sized piece that we can deliver and install in students' heads, and when they re- reproduce it on the exam, they've actually learned something. Look, I always remember the New York Times journalist, Thomas Friedman. I was at one of his presentations some years ago at a conference, and he said we're at the point of time in history now where our ability learn to learn and our ability to adapt to change has just been overtaken by technology. The technology is actually skyrocketed over us. And the most important thing we can do today, he wasn't just talking about teachers, the most important thing we can do is to learn how to cope with a faster rate of change. And I've taken that as a bit of a mantra um, that in terms of leadership and in terms of teaching and in terms of learning, if the most important thing we can do is to learn how to cope with a faster rate of change, to me that implies flexibility, adaptability. Uh, Jal Met is a researcher at Harvard and interestingly last year when America particularly was in lockdown for extended periods and distance learning. Many of the students are still in distance learning in America. So we're not talking about a six week lockdown like we had in in Sydney, we're talking about extended period. And he suggested that the teachers who found it easiest to adapt to those more flexible online learning arrangements were the teachers who had already established a collaborative, trusting, open relationship with the students in their classrooms. And the teachers that struggled the most to adapt were those who had a very formulaic approach and used a carrot and stick approach to discipline. I actually heard one teacher in Sydney say last year, how am I going to get my students to learn if I can't threaten them with the detention if they're not in the room? Oh, no. That's awful. He, he re- he was, <laughs> it's the way some people think. Jalmetta really nailed it for me. If we've got those big rocks in place, if the teacher can really um, provide some nuance around what he or she is doing in terms of their big philosophical approaches in the classroom, that translates in terms of adaptability, flexibility, um, no matter the, the the delivery system. And I'll, I'll caution myself just as I use that phrase, delivery, delivery system, because I don't think teaching is about delivery. I think teaching is an art, and too often we assume that it's not. When we think about how teachers go through this let's call it a messy, non-linear experience. I mean, students, you know, let's take high school, for example, they do year seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, and 12, and that's linear. But what you're suggesting is that the learning experience along the way, if I can put it this way, is somewhat non-linear, and in your word, your words is, is, is messy. That's going to create a really um, vibrant, but yet also volatile environment for teachers. As you said at the beginning, you know, it's, it's new every day, it's a creative exercise. That's obviously going to create a whole range of um, needs for teachers. And we could talk about how to support teachers. Do we do enough to support teachers as they go through this messy, non-linear process? I think supporting teacher independence and supporting teacher agency is, is probably the most important uh, area we can place value and focus on at the moment. I often talk about 
you know, it's a, it's a catchphrase that rolls off the tongue, but I often talk about the importance of supporting curriculum disobedience. In <laughs> hang on a second. Supporting curriculum disobedience. Absolutely. Did in, I hear that? In the, same way, in the same way that academics in university protect their academic freedom, <laughs> I think teachers increasingly should be supported by leadership in schools to practice curriculum disobedience. The idea <laughs> that we can be told from on high this is what you're doing and how you do it, regardless of who's in front of you, where or when, is absurd. Um, and in terms of supporting teachers, what we're noticing around the world at the moment is the gradual devaluing of the tacit knowledge of teachers. And by tacit, I mean that that delicate nuance that's imperceptible to the untrained eye, that yes. the teachers that have built up these skills of, of knowing how to handle certain kids and their content uh, and are able to, to, to adjust it to year nine, period six on a Friday and do it without really knowing how they, how they actually do it. Um, I think we're devaluing that increasingly. Um, Teaching as a profession, we have so many people that, that seem to think they can come into schools and tell us what we should be doing. And teachers tend to bow down to these outside experts when in actual fact, experienced teachers and the tacit knowledge they have should be valued far more highly. And drawing that a little bit further in terms of leadership is the importance of peer collaboration, effective peer collaboration in schools. Dan Lordy's research in the US was about how individualistic and isolated teaching can be. Uh, he pointed out that teachers can be the only really adult profession where you could work an entire a work day without having a conversation with another adult. Mm. Um, some teachers in the US used to eat their lunch in their classrooms. So the importance of, of building a, a collaborative peer approach where it's a team approach to teaching, I think, is crucial and emphasises the importance. Teachers all know the importance of relationships with their students. I think the importance of that relational approach with our colleagues needs to be emphasised as well. And you know I'm a, a large supporter of the cultures of thinking work from Project Zero. Yes, that's right. One of, Ron Rich, one of Ron Richart's key phrases is that for classrooms to be cultures of thinking for students, schools have to be cultures of thinking for teachers. Uh, and that, to me, describes perfectly the sort of environment we should be trying to establish for teachers. And my last point here about supporting teachers is the importance of school leaders having teachers' backs. Um, I read a lovely story last week from Pixar, and they emphasise the importance of bosses acting as human shields. George Lucas, some years ago, uh, was frustrated with the way things were going and demanded of two of the managers that worked for him that they, they needed to have some layoffs. And he said, you've got to deliver me, deliver me a list of the people that we should lay off. Mm -hmm. And the two went away and they thought and thought and thought about it. And they came back and they put the list on George Lucas's desk and he opened the list and it had both of their own names on it. <laughs> and... It's, it's a, a story that's gone down in folklore in Pixar, and I'm not suggesting that that's an example of how we need to act as leaders all the time, but it does, as a metaphor, sort of emphasise the importance of teachers who have their, of, of leaders and, and who have their leaders, sorry, who have teachers' backs, um, willing to support them against uh, ridiculous parental demands, willing to support them against students who are out of line, the importance of of leaders, principals, uh, middle managers in schools who are protecting the idiocy sometimes that teachers are confronted with. Bearing all those things in mind, I can't help thinking as I listen to you that there's an emerging need then perhaps to completely rethink how we prepare teachers for this environment. I mean, what you're describing here is, uh, well, it's, it's not the kind of thing that I was listening to 20 years ago when I was starting my teaching career. 
So does that mean that we need to think differently about how teachers need to start their careers now and, and throw that back towards teacher preparation? I want to be a little bit careful here because I have some knowledge of early teacher preparation. Uh, I do an annual lecture for second year masters of teaching students at University of Sydney. And I know the work that's being done by uh, University of New South Wales. I know you're at UTS involved in initial teacher education. So the first thing I want to say is that I think the universities are doing an exceptional job in terms of preparing pre-service teachers. Uh, when I see pre-service teachers today, they are far more effectively prepared than people were to teach 20 years ago, 15 years ago. I'm seeing very capable and reflective pra practitioners. Um, I think the continuing development of those practitioners is more problematic. Uh, and I think that's our problem. That's a school problem. It isn't a university problem. So an in-service problem rather than a pre-service problem. Absolutely. Uh, and I'm talking on-the-job mentoring, coaching. I believe that every teacher should have a coach. If sports people, if business people have coaches, I believe teachers should all have coaches. Uh, collaborative inquiry, I mentioned a minute ago the importance of that peer collaboration, but creating that and supporting that mechanism within schools. My one request, if I had a, a wish list, my one request was that I wish universities could just press a little bit harder on ensuring that pre-service teachers were better prepared to question the basic grammar of schooling, things like using marks as motivation and 50-minute periods. Mm. We tend to have this attitude that we teach the way we were taught, and I'd like to be able to press a little bit more effectively on that. But one another point that I'll, I'll, I'll raise is that when we're talking about preparing teachers for modern classrooms, uh, we need to think very carefully about what a modern classroom actually is. That's a very good question. Can you elaborate on that? <laughs> well, I, I, I'm just thinking about all of the differences that come to mind straight away because I know some pre-service teachers will go straight into very traditional classrooms, which would look like a classroom that you and I went to school in. Others, for instance, might be going to an incredibly collaborative team teaching open space environment. Others might be going to teach at the School of the Air mm. or teach yeah. in distance learning. Yeah. And when we talk about preparing teachers for modern classrooms, I think that immediately creates a default in our mind of what we think a classroom is. I, I, I think we're, we're increasingly we have so many differences in terms of blended models. That the, the phrase, the word classroom is almost becoming outdated. Oh, we are having this meeting over Zoom. And in the last session, I taught many students over Zoom. And that immediately creates an entirely different sort of situation. And in fact, you know, something that I've reflected on with a few other um, academics and teachers as well is particularly in today's world, and, and, you know, we've kind of had a shot across the bow here with COVID as well. When you, for example, if you take a story and you go and watch the movie, you could read the book, which is the book to the movie, and have a slightly different experience. And then you could go and have the stage production of the same story. So you've got three different experiences of the same story. What I find about that is... Each of those different experiences are appealing to a different kind of person and will give you a different nuance on the story. So the modern classroom, I think, is almost like a different form of media that we could add to those three. So you've got the movie, the book, and the, uh, and the stage production, and now you've got this whole other world of education that's opening up. And that's just expanding what we might call the modern classroom by another order of magnitude. Um, do you see that in a normal classroom, in, or when I say normal classroom, but in a, a, a kind of a traditional schooling environment, 
could we also see more of this online teaching happening just within our own normal kind of schools? Look, I'd love to see that uh, down the track that COVID's led to some changes along those lines. Uh, teaching and schools tend to be a... Schools were designed to conserve, right? They pass on the best of the past for the future. And they tend to be very conservative environments. Uh, I'd love to see more blended models. We have this, this format in our head of six-period days and 50-minute periods um, that I'd love to see educational leaders really challenging. And I know in many places uh, around the world, and certainly in Australia, uh, it, those challenges are, are being met. Uh, but completely redefining what we could mean by the timetable. Uh, one of the key learnings that for us came out of our, our very short experience in lockdown and distance learning was we had a number of students who actually, well, there were some who struggled. We had a number of students, a significant number, who absolutely thrived in distance learning. And the reasons that they gave us in response afterwards, in response to a, a fairly detailed survey, was that they enjoyed not having the travel time to and from school, making their own decisions rather than being told what to do all the time. Mm. And they actually found that they were eating more healthily and becoming fitter at home because they had the choices around their own time. Um, how can we support students who are already there in, there in terms of that independence and agency and ready to take advantage of these sorts of blended models? How can we support them more effectively? I suspect in the future that that sort of online blended mode will be seen as a privilege for students and a, a, a privilege that they get to earn their right towards. Yeah, I could just see it in the future now. So you'll be standing in a classroom somewhere with some students there and you'll be doing your best to do your presentation and keep them all engaged. And, and you'll have a wonderful lesson only to have some student come up to you at the end as they're heading out the door saying, thank you, Mr. Patterson, that was a wonderful lesson, but actually I've already seen the movie. <laughs> well, university, universities are, are certainly have, have found that over the last decade, certainly predating COVID. As universities were starting to record lectures, the attendance rate fell dramatically. Uh, students could watch it at home. Why bother attending university? Thinking now back to our pre-service teachers who are listening to us thinking, oh my goodness, what am I about to get myself into here? Let's just reiterate the fact that it is a very rewarding profession and there's a lot to like about it. And I really do like that idea, the fact that it's, it, it, it's not necessarily linear. It's not necessarily always going to go right. And that's part of the reward as you navigate your way through that. Thinking then about teachers who are just about to get into that and who perhaps are in that, who feel like they need some support, who feel like they need to get some help. How would you suggest they go about doing that? Look, I think there are all sorts of ways that teachers can get mentoring and coaching support. Um, but that's the first thing I would suggest is find somebody who can mentor you and don't be scared of approaching somebody that can be a mentor to you who might push you in really challenging ways. I think that's important. I'm moving to a new school in July this year and I've been really impressed with their their early package that they've distributed to me in terms of a human resource package because every teacher in the school is automatically signed up to EAP Connect, uh, which is a free counselling service and that can be a, a coaching service. So if there's a, a difficult situation you're confronted with, a challenging situation in your teaching, you've got off-campus, off-site, already paid for a consult that you can go and, and seek some advice for, or just somebody that's an expert in helping draw the solutions out of your own expertise. Um, there's all sorts of ways in terms of teachers can get support to now online. Uh, Teach Meet's a fantastic groups of teachers who come together to chat about 
interesting ideas in relation to teaching and learning. Uh, Steffi Salazar is a bit of a go-getter here in Sydney. She's set up a wonderful organisation online called New Teacher Tribe, uh, and they have all sorts of face-to-face -face and online activities to support new teachers. Uh, in terms of Twitter conversations, Twitter chat, Aussie Ed on Sunday nights, there's a million people there who are willing to support. I come back to some of Jay Cross's work on informal learning here. Uh, in terms of informal conversations, we all know the importance of the conversations we have in the staff room, mm. in the corridor, in the car park after work, in the pub on a Friday. Well, Jay Cross's work suggested that 80% of our professional learning is in fact informal and incidental. Wow. And to me, you think about the amount of formal professional learning that teachers go through. If 80% of our professional learning is informal and incidental, once we're aware of that statistic, how can we approach that informal and incidental learning with more uh, nuance, with more awareness than we actually do at the moment? Mm. How many schools provide any sort of support for informal and incidental learning in terms of their budgeting? Just as, as one very simple example, one of the changes I made many years ago after becoming aware of this statistic was that on our staff professional development days, we extended the lunchtime and we extended the morning tea time after surveying staff and finding out some of the best professional conversations they had that entire day. When we're having really professional uh, experts come in and speak and all sorts of collaborative team conversations during the day, the best conversations they had were in the queue for morning tea for coffee <laughs> at lunchtime with their colleagues. I love it. <laughs> so by extending, extending that time in 15 minutes, we were getting more value as a school. Oh, that's excellent. Cameron, we've talked about some pretty big issues today. We've raised some issues that I hadn't expected would, uh, would uh, present themselves. And I'm not sure that we've necessarily covered all of the answers, but I think that's kind of part and parcel of what you were trying to communicate right from the beginning. It's not necessarily as ordered as we like, but it's been a really inspirational conversation. I thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Colin. Um, I completely agree with what you just said. The, the, the problem is when we look for black and white answers because learning's messy and we're not going to get them, we need to be willing to play in the middle. Indeed, learning is messy. You've been listening to Central Station. If you'd like to hear how other inspiring educators have helped students to improve their learning, then make sure you subscribe to Central Station on your favourite podcast app or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you think this episode would be helpful for a friend or colleague, then please share it with them. This podcast is brought to you by Central. To find out more, visit the website central.com.au. I'm Colin Klupik. Thanks for listening.